This is The Global Custodian. There's always a FinReg Angle podcast keeping you up to date with the latest developments in financial regulation. Hello and welcome to episode three of There's Always a FinReg Angle. I'm John Watkins, editor of Global Custodian, and I'm joined virtually, as always, by a cast of FinReg experts, Joe Parsons, Sean Tuffy, Virginia O'Shea. Welcome back, everyone. Great to be here. Hiya. Welcome. Hey. Hello. Oh, well, I think three episodes makes us a uh, bona fide series, and I, I'm personally happy that the podcast format's taken off as opposed to video at a time where none of us can get to hairdressers or barbers. So that's good for me. Um, so Joe, you were on camera yesterday, weren't you, hosting our post-trade webinar with uh, Deutsche Bank and, and others? How did that go? Oh well, well I, I wish we, I wasn't on camera, as, as you you know might have said before. You know, I've, I've, at the moment, I've got a face of podcasts. Uh, I, I had the bold decision of whether to cut my hair pre or post uh, uh, webinar, so I, I think I've gone with the decision to to do it maybe afterwards. But um, no, it was very good. We we had a uh, an all star panel. Um, uh, we had sort of global head of security services at Deutsche Bank, uh, Michaela Ludbrook. We also had Darren Pierce from BMY Mellon, the CEO of uh, EMA Asset Services. There, who's a you know a big name in the industry, and. Um, Alan Coping from uh, SimCorp, and you know we had a really sort of interesting mm-hmm. um, discussion. It was limited to an hour. I'm sure we could probably go on for much, much longer. Um, but we had about 100, well over 150 uh, people listening in, which was you know, fantastic, really, given it was our sort of very first um, uh, webinar. Uh, so it was no, it was really, really great. We had. Good discussions around the impact of, sort of COVID nineteen on security services ops. We talked about um, how sort of technology is playing out in this in uh, this current time, um, and also what what they thought for the future of uh, of regulation and, and where um, firms will look to you know, adapt certain procedures to, to comply in the future. So it was really really great. Um, so yeah, so we talked about a lot about regulation as well and and how firms are preparing. Their uh, procedures and operations to, to really um, cope with, with with those sort of new legislations going to, coming down the uh, pipeline, and it also leads us well to a uh, next webinar that we that I'm hosting um, on Thursday next week um, with Apex Fund Services, and we're going to be talking about something that's very very niche, but still very relevant. Yeah, good stuff, Joe. No, it was it was a good one uh, yesterday, and. I never heard the words or the phrase "new normal" um, quite as much as as, as uh, in that webinar, and uh, yeah, looking forward to next week. So, uh, um, Sean, how are you? I, I saw uh, City launched a new security services website this week. I feel like that had your name written all over it. Yeah, no, I'm doing okay. Yeah, so the the, the security services insight website that you let me uh, generously uh, plug here on the website on the podcast officially went live uh, this week. So that was a Big accomplishment for us. Other than that, sort of dealing with uh, continuing COVID impact, but sort of, <clears throat> I think everyone would agree we've sort of settled in, um, settled into this being sort of the way things are now. So it's a little less, um, a little less contingency and a little more business as usual. Absolutely. Um, and and Virginia, um, what's been keeping you busy? And and sorry, I know you're uh, the most upset about us having this at uh, four o'clock on a Friday. 
<laughs> it's beer o'clock at four o'clock. My goodness. Um, in terms of what I've been up to, I mean, I'm currently doing a sort of research project looking at corporate actions um, and shareholder disclosures and uh, issue of communications, actually. So I've been speaking to everyone from uh, someone in Chile to someone in Belgium and everywhere <laughs> in between uh, over the last couple of weeks. So I've uh, been keeping very busy chatting away, uh, watching people's, uh, it's, it's really interesting. It's like, um, how do I describe it? Like through the keyhole for, for people you've been speaking to on the phone for quite a long time, you actually get to see them on video these days because everyone <laughs> seems to want to turn their video on, aside from me. Um, but uh, it's quite cool. So you get to see where they live. And, and if it's sort of somewhere out in the wilds of Chile, it's quite nice, yeah. actually. Quite a nice view. You do have that sort of awkward moment when you are dialing in to to, to to do a Zoom call or a Microsoft Teams call, and they've got your ca- they've got their camera on, and you're like, oh no, I mean, I've got to put my camera on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's totally a game of chicken, really. I just refuse. <laughs> yeah. No, thank you. They don't need to see me. <laughs> uh, we have. A uh, big talking point today, which is ESG regulation, which we're going to get into a bit later on. But first, we're just going to do a quick uh, news roundup, um, because as always, there's been a lot of going-ons in the FinRail world uh, since our last podcast recording. And I thought we'd start with a story that Global Custodian actually broke last week, that ESMA had uh, essentially shot down the majority of requests that were sent in by about a dozen trade associations to tweak some parts of CSDR rules um, and delay some other parts. The regulator essentially said that uh, they had already delayed it and uh, the rules were, or the rules that were being queried were, were in there for a reason and those reasons hadn't changed. Uh, one of those big parts was related to the buy-in rules, which market participants keep uh, you know, pointing out to ESMA that it could have serious impacts on, on liquidity. Uh, but again, in, in response to the request um, to make that discretionary or, or delay it, ESMA uh, again, said no. Um, Sean, uh, yeah, obviously you, you saw this story. What were your thoughts on, on this? It's surprising and not surprising. So in light of the recent COVID uh, disruption, I think groups had hoped that uh, you know, ESMA and the commission might reconsider the buy-ins. But at the same time, they've been pretty, ESMA and the commission have been pretty steadfast uh, in their position that the buy-in rules are necessary. Now that said, I'm not sure we've heard the last of this issue because the, the ESMA response was essentially uh, from a letter in January um, and was, was actually written in March. So before a lot of the t- turmoil really took on. So I still wouldn't be surprised and I sort of wrote this in a, uh, an article last week if this got revisited again, because I think the issue of market liquidity is sort of front and center of a lot of regulators' minds at the moment. I mean, CSDRs, uh, I mean, the buy-in rules have always been controversial, right? This is why they've been delayed for so long. So, um, I mean, I I don't know. I, I, I feel like the, the the people that drafted the rules are, are kind of very keen on the idea of the, the sort of the bar being set across, same across Europe, because we do have buy-in rules in certain markets, right? We do have, um, certain markets do have those rules in place um, and, and uh it, it would introduce them into, into other new markets, obviously, but I feel like there is still a, a will to push it through regardless of market liquidity, unfortunately. Um, they may revisit it, but I, I'm not sure about that, <laughs> having having spoken to a few people. Um, we'll see. Yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, I think I think the industry will certainly take another run at it, whether or not the, the commission acquiesces at all, who knows. Um, 
So I think about it as something to pay close attention to. And that, but groups, I mean, one of the issues, as everyone knows, is, you know, you need these buy-in brokers. And right now there's still only one in the marketplace. So there are, are some elements that need to be sort of sorted out before this can really practically I mean, it's crazy. it's crazy. I've, 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 been, I've been reading or writing about these buy-in rules, I think probably since I first joined Global Custodian in sort of late 2014. And it was you know, a mess back then and it's still a mess now. It's, it's unbelievable how you know, they're able to come up with, come up with something that's, that's acceptable. That's post-trade for you. It moves it at glacial pace, sadly. <laughs> Give us 10 years and we'll, we'll maybe change something. <laughs> yeah, it gives you an excuse to use that uh, gift from Titanic. You know, it's been 83 years. I mean, I'm thinking more of the, what's, what's it, the, is it the gift from, uh, the, is it the film, is it Aeroplane or, you know, with the, the skeleton in, in, the, in the, uh, the seat after like 10 minutes or whatever? I'll be me waiting for <laughs> Some things we've been waiting for since 2001. Joe, come on. <laughs> Juvenini's report back then pointed out some of this stuff. <laughs> oh, Jesus. I mean, you think about that. That market just hasn't. I mean, since I've been in the industry, that market's barely changed. It's depressing. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, as much as we enjoy writing about corporate actions, I do not want to turn this into a uh, corporate actions podcast at this point. So um, we can launch a side project there, Virginia. <laughs> uh, Joe, you, uh, you've been working on a couple of other stories this week as well. What else is going on in, in the FinRug world? Yeah, I mean, in the FinRug world, there was, there was uh, some big news from the sort of ECB over the past couple of weeks. Uh, they've been you know, uh, putting a number of measures to... Sort of safeguard the markets at the moment. Uh, one of the big ones was that they um, allowed sort of junk bonds to be sort of acceptable collateral to sort of avoid you know a potential shortage um, of, of the amount of collateral was around. And it's quite funny that you know, for years they've been sort of saying that you know, there is enough high quality assets in the market to, to use as collateral. Mm. But then when you've got the you know the the, the price of these assets falling and and there's probably not enough cash around in the market to post as, as collateral they it's 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 kind of a, you know a sign that it's it's well troubled signs really to, to then you know go towards you know certain countries that, that, that have that sort of junk status and, and allow them to to use as, as high quality assets and i think virginia i saw you posted something similar on this as well yeah, I mean that we've long been fearing the right, well, the, the the advent of a collateral squeeze, right? Um, we've been thinking about it for quite a long time, post two thousand and eight, and it didn't really happen. Um, there wasn't that much demand for, you know, the, as much demand as people assumed for collateral um, being transformed and things like that. So, and we, and we haven't had, we've had margin calls increasing and decreasing. You know, that happens naturally, but at the moment, it's obviously quite. <laughs> Quite a stressed market, quite high volume, quite, and everything's being downgraded across the, the the board, right? So you think about all of those sort of relatively safe assets. Everything's being, um, <clears throat> you know, U.S. Treasuries, things like that. God knows what's going to happen with all these things, um, and and the the prospect of a real collateral crunch kind of comes to the forefront of your mind. And and what what do we do in that circumstance? I mean, it's sort of unprecedented times, right, to have that kind of, of downgrading across the board. Yeah, I mean, they got to talk their book somehow, right? I mean, so, um, but I think the uh, the collateral thing is interesting. And it also goes back to, 
a few weeks ago when the UMR wave five and six both got delayed, sort of on the ECB has been saying good things about uh, it for quite some time. I don't think anyone else has. Sort of collateral shortage or collateral squeeze. So I think it's not an issue, issue probably not going away anytime soon. Yeah, I agree. And like you said, one of unprecedented times at the moment. So hitting that panic button is, uh, has got to be viewed, viewed differently. Um, well, I think that wraps up every every kind of uh, news development. And, and like I said, we're going to get into our, our big talking point soon, which is ESG regulation, because there have been some developments there. Uh, but right before we get into today's big talking point, uh, we have a follow up on last week's very important question, which was which quarantine house um, would you rather live in? Uh, we had some quite interesting feedback from some of our listeners on that. So um, we're we're going to do a bit of a follow-up. Uh, as I said earlier, uh, after three episodes, I think we can officially call this a series. So my question for, for you all today is, uh, if there was a TV series about your lockdown life, which actor would play you in the series and why? Uh, and if two of us have the same answer, then it's going to reveal a lot about our pre-show planning here. Uh, so, Ginny, let me start <laughs> off by coming to you. You're coming to me first? Oh, goodness. So, <laughs> this is probably going to surprise people. TV's Troy McClure, because no one else could be quite so versatile, right? He's done everything from public service announcements through to, you know, action movies. So, only he could have the versatility of, of playing my life, I think, and, and the, with the passion for Finreg. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was an incredible answer. Thanks. <laughs> um, Sean, who did you have? Yeah, I think mine would be uh, the actor Jason Manzukis, uh, primarily because if you watch the yes. show Brooklyn Nine-Nine, he plays a character uh, called Pimento, and I haven't had a haircut or shaved my beard in like eight weeks, so I'm starting to ha- develop a very weird and wild look <laughs> right now. Oh, yeah, he's also in a series called The League as well, um, which he plays, I think he just plays the same actor in, in, every, uh, in every series. Uh, yeah, well, sure, you're revealing a lot about uh, yourself there, he's... Uh, uh, quite an eccentric character. <laughs> Joe, who would you have? Uh, well, if we're going on Simpsons characters, McBain would be an amazing one to be. Uh, well, yeah. Not um, the job. Uh, we, well, I've, I've been told on more than one occasion that I have uh, a likeness to the English comedian Rob Beckett. Rather than the big teeth uh, and, and the way. But. Uh, Oh come on! If, if it's if someone's got to play you, it's got to be um, Mark Wahlberg. The guy's a method actor. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I don't know how obvious that is. Um, but yeah, if it's got to be one person. It's got to be Mark Wahlberg. But I agree that would be a, a very cool person to, to play you. You say he's a quite quite dynamic acting abilities, Joe. Oh yeah, he's an inventor in Transformers <laughs> Four. He's a clock. <laughs> I mean, the list word. goes on. Um, Isn't there like Man Man's film as well? He's, he, he can do the whole, he's got the whole range. Yeah, so we wanted to learn more about uh, each of our speakers on, on the podcast through this, and, and it's definitely working. Uh, guys, producer Kai, we didn't introduce you at the start of the show. Um, uh, so, do you want to, uh, yeah, who did you ask for your. Ooh, for my actor. So, I think. Uh... To start the film or start the series, it would be uh, Daniel Radcliffe from Harry Potter. Mid series, are you gonna? It's gonna. Well, it could progresses because I think by the end of the series or the end of the movie, it would be Jack Black. (laughs) (laughs) Just the weight change is is growing pretty rapid here with all this food (laughs) in the kitchen. You know, 
So yeah, I think uh, those two would play me, would play my lockdown life. Fantastic. Good answers, everyone. Um, what about I, you, I, 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 Yeah, I, I mean, I feel like you've all, uh, you know, brought some really humorous answers there. And I don't want to sound too serious when I say that Daniel Craig would play me. Um, and reveal too much about myself but it's more that I would just love to see James Bond kind of act out all the mundane tasks that I fill in my day at the moment like um, cleaning up nappies or, or rushing to rubbish out um, when I saw the, the truck approach my house one day and realised I needed to get <laughs> rubbish in or live in rubbish, by rubbish for another week so I think he'd make that scene much cooler than I did running around in my slippers um, yeah <laughs> thanks for sure uh, right thanks all of you for those, those wonderful answers. Let's get on to the big talking point. Um, and, you know, there, there was a, um, an ESMA call for a consultation this week on, on ESG. Um, but I think firstly, just to kind of set the scene, what um, you know, how, how have you seen ESG strategies um, kind of fare through this crisis? Because I guess they were kind of not necessarily born out of the last financial crisis, but they're, they're, they're kind of purple ESGs kind of come to... Um, yeah, it's matured during the last last decade or so. So, kind of, how's it handled this first test? And um, you know, has it still been a, a big focus for asset managers and owners um, during the crisis so far? Uh, Virginia, why don't I um, come to you for first on that? Sure. I mean, I think we've had some some interesting data come out. I think Refinitiv was showing a couple of weeks ago. So Bloomberg have been showing it as well that um, ESG fund performance has been better than average fund performance and. Um, I mean, it's 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 hard to assess at this earlier stage, but I think some of the things that you, you know bear in mind with regards to that is that the oil oil and gas sector uh, tend not to be included in ESG, so uh, things like uh, those those firms are sort of shielded, um, ESG is shielded from their performance or their lack of performance, um, given that I think it's now cheaper to buy. Um, a pack of cigarettes than it is to buy oil, a can of oil or a canister of oil, barrel, which is quite scary. Is the oil now, isn't it? That's, uh... <laughs> yeah, it's quite terrifying. Um, but the, there are things like that. There's also the governance aspect and, you know, ESG uh, tends to focus on, on, obviously, the G bit is around governance and um, firms that are well governed tend to perform better in times of market stress. So uh, that would account, I guess, for some of the performance. And obviously, this is good news for, for a lot of the institutional um, investors that have been doubling down on their ESG investments over time. Um, you think about the Japanese government pension fund that's absolutely, I think it's the biggest pension fund in the world, has a huge um, pool of assets dedicated to ESG strategies, climate change, sustainability, all of that stuff has been a long-term focus for that that particular um, institution. So I would say uh, it's interesting. Um, I, I would like to see, you know, longer term, being an analyst, I look at data over, you know, I, I generally don't look at sort of short term data. I prefer to look at it over the longer term. So it'll be interesting to see how it changes over time. But I, I do expect that it will perform well, just just for the reasons I said. I don't know if Sean agrees with me on that. But. I mean, I, I agree with both points, really. It's a, it's a small sample size and the markets are a little askew and all over the place. So it's kind of hard to figure out what's happening. But when you look at how ESG funds screened out certain sectors, be it oil or petrochemicals or airlines, uh, et cetera, those have been harder hit by the the COVID slowdown. So it, it would stand to reason that they would perform better. Um, so I think that is probably accounts for a lot of it, but it will be interesting to see over a longer time horizon what that means. Yeah. 
and 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 so Sean uh, and Virginia, I'm sure that you've both been uh, um, looking through the, the ESMA consultation paper, um, which is great because I'm sure me and Joe haven't. Uh, <laughs> which is why we're going to come to you and, and just ask <laughs> outline some of the uh, you know what what was in that paper, Sean. Um, what, what yeah, what are your what are your takeaways from from the paper? The paper that came out uh, last week um, was really. Uh, the disclosure part of the ESG regulation. And so there are two parts of it, uh, an entity level disclosure and a product level disclosure. So the product level disclosure is about what everybody is kind of used to increase disclosures for uh, funds uh, in terms of how ESG considerations impact their fund with some specific disclosures around uh, indexes. And then if you are an ESG manager, some additional disclosures around your compliance with the the forthcoming EU taxonomy. The entity level disclosures are a a different beast altogether. And I I hasten to point out that what makes these ESG rules different is that they apply to all asset managers, but regardless if they are an ESG manager. So the entity level disclosures call for all, all asset managers that employ more than 500 people are gonna to have to disclose the adverse effects of their investments. So sort of looking at the companies they invest in and sort of what, what bad they're doing for lack of a more eloquent term. So looking at their carbon footprint, uh, their impact on biodiversity, all the way through to sort of gender pay gaps um, and societal impact. And so that's a really heavy lift um, and no one's really sure where you're gonna get that, that data from. So I think that's probably the more challenging of the two elements. Yeah, and I mean that's that's a lot. And um, Virginia, I know you've pointed out in, in things you've written that you know different asset managers of different sizes are going to be able to handle this in different ways. Um, so yeah, given I mean everything that's going on at the moment, plus the additional uh, regulations that are out there, um, you know, is this uh, this going to be a lot for some people? Yes, <laughs> is the short answer to that. Um, I mean, if, if I think about it from the smaller asset, I mean, the, the danger with, with pushing a lot of um, smaller, medium-sized or small, small to medium-sized asset managers down this route is that it could actually impair, um, well, it can impair the market, it can impair their performance, it can impair, <laughs> impair their um, profitability, it could take them out of the market if it's too onerous, um, as any piece of regulation can, if it, if it really negatively impacts them. I mean, I doubt this will, but in, to that extent. But it will also, it can also mean that reporting isn't adhered to very well at the, t- the tail end. Um, and, you know, the, the overall quality of the data suffers. So you, you kind of need to make it right-sized, otherwise you actually don't do any good. So um, that's one thing that the regulators do have to bear in mind. This is why I sort of talk about the fair, you know, there needs to be a fine line between, you know, transparency is great, but it, if you require too much of, of, um, of firms, then you can push them the other direction completely and they don't take it as seriously as they, they can. And um, unless you have a really, really strict enforcement uh, mechanism, which I doubt they will, um, because they'll be looking at the bigger firms to begin with, I would imagine, um, because those tend to be the, the easier ones to target. So, I mean, overall, you've just got to be very careful with, with this stuff. And I know there's there's lots of different proposals. It's 91 pages, the paper. Um, it's had input from the three. It's not just ESMA. It's, it's the three different ESAs. So they've had the insurance and pensions guys looking at it. Um, they've had the the, um, the banking regulator, European level banking regulator looking at it. And I fear that they're, you know, it's going to be too broad <laughs> as well as being too detailed. So they could go, they, they, 
they could go either way and it could be detrimental. So it, it's, it's a risky area for them to, to take either approach. Um, they kind of need a middle ground. So, do you, Virginia, do you think there's a danger then that if it's because if it's so broad, then it doesn't really achieve the goals that it's sort of, sort of set out to, to 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 meet with enhancing data and transparency? I mean, if you look at it, there's a lot of moving parts to ESG. Obviously, E, S, and G are all very separate things. Um, the the intentional, you know, the, the focus has really been on sustainability. To be fair, uh, within the regulatory community, rather than the other two. Um, you know, so so the E bit, uh, not the S bit, which is confusing. Uh, especially when I talk to people, and they always assume the S is sustainability. It's not. It's social, but the social aspects are, um, I, I guess, brushed over sometimes. They're, they're very hard to quantify. The social bits, the governance bit, is slightly easier to quantify um, in terms of statistics. Um, but the sustainability bit is really what um, most regulators are focusing on, largely because of all the different pledges we've made around climate climate change as an industry and, and, and reducing, um, I guess, negative impacts, as, as, as it were, in, in terms of the, the, the climate, which is very important, and the environment. But I think each of the different things needs to be <laughs> broken down and examined rather than, you know, clumping it all together. I know, obviously, as an investment strategy, ESG makes sense, but you do need to look at all the factors individually. Um, I don't know if Sean agrees with me on that, but I think sometimes we don't really think about the two the three different letters meaning three different separate things that all relate to each other i mean governance certainly is tied to social aspects um but they are distinct in my yeah opinion. i think that if you were to ask the you know the eu policymakers it's sort of a an uppercase e and then a lowercase s and g and they're 100 percent looking really through the prism of sustainability and environmental impact as you said, it's really about the sort of pledges they made in the Paris Accords and the UN sustainability agreements. Um, and it's really an attempt to push, because um, it's part of a larger sustainability and finance uh, initiative. And it's really to push asset management to be a tool to help the EU achieve their sustainability objectives. So it's a little beyond product level governance or creating you know, an environment for ESG investments. And I think that's part of the challenge that firms have. And I think the other issue um, is, as Virginia said, that there's a lot of moving parts here. Um, so this ties in, these disclosure rules ties into that taxonomy that's being created and to the benchmarks that are being created, but they're all going at different speeds. And while they're interconnected, that they're not being sequenced necessarily in the right way. So it makes it really hard for managers to sort of produce ESG disclosures when the taxonomy is not going to be ready for another year and a half. So I think there are some real challenges with the the order flow as well. Yeah, there's huge gaps with annexes that need to to, to be to be detailed. Um, there's there's pages of that in there. So yeah, it's 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 tough to to give a clear response from the perspective of the industry when when you don't have all the information to hand. Um, and and the full ramifications of what you're applying to. I mean, and some of those questions are really open-ended in there. <laughs> I, mean, I, th- I think they're intentionally open-ended, but good Lord, you could write an essay on every single one, I think. Yeah, they are sort of open-ended and kind of leading. And I think it's, I mean, the other thing that's hard for the industry, if we're being honest, is this is a very tricky piece of regulation to sort of lobby for changes or modification to, because the, the policymakers can kind of turn around and say, like, why do you hate the planet when you ask for them to, sort of soften some of the rules. So it's really hard to lobby. So you, you always see the industry saying, we agree with the objectives and we agree with ESG, but, or however, we'd like these things 
softened, but it's a very sort of emotive topic too. So it's a very challenging piece of re regulation to try to get policymakers to look at from a purely technical or practical standpoint of where, you know, very mundane stuff like where is this data going to come from? How are we going to report this, uh, et cetera? Any response? I mean, obviously, they publish a lot of the responses um, and they have to kind of publish it for transparency reasons. Mm -hmm. um, it's going to be a bit of a reputational hit if you <laughs> if you come back and say this is absolute nonsense, isn't it? Um, I agree. I think I hadn't really thought about that, but that is a good point. Um, so I wonder if that will impact the number of firms that actually do respond or, or give clear, clear responses to all of the questions. It may do, actually. Yeah, I think it might. I think it, I think you'll see some very hedged or nuanced answers. And I think you'll, I mean, this is also where you'll see industry bodies, be it the ICI or Fama or Irish Funds um, or Alfie start coming to the fore as well and sort of doing anonymized um, responses on behalf of their membership. But it is a really tricky thing to, to lobby for. Um, and even really mundane things, like one of the real challenges with the disclosures is the, is the pure timeline of implementation. So because it's a big issue, the, the consultation is open till September, which means like mid-December at the earliest, we'll see the final rules, but disclosures will start next March. So that gives people, we'll get people like at most three months to get in gear. So you're gonna have to have managers thinking about solutions uh, and, and updating their infrastructure sort of on half information, which is not ideal. They really love a Christmas implementation time frame for stuff, don't they? It's always great, isn't it? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah no, as one does a lot. I mean, they really do love dropping sort of final rules and standards and then closing down for two weeks for Christmas. Yeah. It's, sort of a, it's an annual tradition, which, you know, for Finn Red nerds is kind of fun, but for the industry isn't, isn't great. <laughs> Anyone implementing it, it's a nightmare. My goodness, <laughs> long hours. I mean, there are, there are valid things that, um, you know, it's hard to provide feedback on. Though. I mean, thinking about the, the status of the data that people are sourcing to, to build um, funds out of, I mean, there is, there's, there's hardly any sort of, it's, it's, it's not homogenous out there. There's a lot of heterogeneous um, diff, you know, methodologies for producing um, indices. Uh, there's lots of, you know, for any kind of scoring methodologies is proprietary at the moment to each vendor and to each, you know, financial institution. So it's really moving from something that's entirely disparate to something that would have to be some, it, it's quite a leap is what I'm saying here to move from, from what we have now to something that's completely formalized and, um, you know, standardized within that short time frame. I, it's, I don't know if it's possible for, to be to be fair. So what's the, what's the actual... What do you think the actual will actually do to ESG investing after this? Do you think it'll actually maybe provide a boost to it, or would it be you know, some sort of detriment? Well, I think the one of the objectives is sort of to this you know get rid of so-called greenwashing um, and make it that ESG funds are actually ESG, and you have this concept of dark green and light green funds out there. So one of the goals is to make make ESG more transparent, as Virginia was saying, to make it easier for consumers to understand that a fund is ESG when it says it's ESG. So that's one of the goals. Um, and I think over a long enough time horizon, that probably does happen with the product disclosures and the taxonomy. Um, the trickier goal is sort of what does it mean when you're trying to make a whole industry essentially a little greener um, as opposed to the product level. And that's one of the real challenges. It'll be interesting to see what the end impact is on investment, though. I, I mean, some 
Some would say that the more standardized the product gets, the less, less exciting it is. And, you know, it'll fall into just, you know, another category of investment and, and probably <laughs> you may see a downtick, you know, an uptick, a massive uptick and then a mm -hmm. sort of a flattening of the, the interest in it. Um, that, that does happen. But I don't know with this because obviously it's, it's an area that um, new generations are coming into. They're interested in this, this space, rightly so. Um, and I imagine there's going to be sustained push from governments to focus on these issues going forward. Maybe not all governments yet, but uh, we'll see. Uh, they may be forced down that route um, as more scientific inf you know, information comes out if we pay attention to scientists. Uh, not that I want to get into that bit, but you know, I, I'd say <laughs> it's also quite a political issue, though. You think about climate change. It's not, it's not neutral, is it? Because there are a lot of climate deniers out there so um it is it's, it's interesting i mean looking at the adoption it, it doesn't seem to be massively influenced and on the investor side by where you're located um but it you know the demographic is interesting from that perspective yeah i think i mean it's a really good point actually that if everyone all of a sudden has to be an esg manager you know how does that you know does that sort of damper esg product demand because everyone's doing it i mean i think that's Will be interesting to see unfold. I think the other thing that will be interesting is when the taxonomy is finished. I think a lot of ESG managers, because they're going to need to disclose what essentially what percentage taxonomy compliant they are, are going to look a lot less ESG than they had anticipated. So I think that will have some impacts. But I think the other element of this and the real elephant in the room that we haven't touched on is that um, Obviously, Europe's uh, doesn't exist in a vacuum, um, and as with some of their other regulations recently, this was going to have this is probably going to make some waves. So the EU is just so much farther ahead in their thinking and the development of their framework that, similar to what we saw with MIFID and GDPR, I think we're going to see the impact of this ripple outward on global asset management. So if you're sitting in New York right now and thinking that you can duck this, uh, I think you probably want to think again because there will certainly be an impact to your business. So, so Sean, maybe off the back of that, is it is it a case where maybe the EU is is sort of the the pack leader and the one sort of you know really taking taking the uh, steering wheel on this, or are they more more like the lone wolf? I think uh, a little from column A and a little from column B. Um, they are definitely sort of acting um, sort of on their own and developing their framework, but they are also in essence setting the global standard because there's all, because no other jurisdiction is really that that developed in their thinking so i think it's going to end up being these standards get adopted in various forms in other places you know for example the taxonomy uh when complete in the absence of anything else you know you'll have an, an official a regulatory blessed taxonomy for esg and institutional investors everywhere are probably going to start demanding uh that that taxonomy be used for their investment purposes. So I just think I think it's inevitable that this is going to become a global standard um, by default. There could be a lot of arguing, though, unfortunately, on the on the point of how you come come up with scoring. So I mean, there are different ways of doing it. So just I mean, just to elaborate on a couple of those. I mean, if you think of the positive screening or negative screening um, is, is you know, one big distinction, and you can even have neutral in the middle. So, I mean, you, you, can, in, you, you can positively choose companies that you believe to be, or for, for various factors, are, um, you know, for example, green-friendly, or you can exclude other companies actively, like oil, like airlines, because they are not carbon-friendly. 
But you think about impact, and and I, this is something that plagues me, right? Um, by not including a whole swathe of industries, you aren't actually encouraging them to change. If you, if you do just disinclude them from this investment space, then you know you want you want to think that those industries. I mean, if the intent of this is to to think about the impact on the climate, surely we want to be including those industries, but also encouraging them for their good behaviours. So that's, I mean, that you have to be really, really careful. I mean, if you do think about it long term and about impact, um, not just the ESG and the investment part of it, um, that's one thing that you've got to bear in mind. And it's very hard to measure impact. It's not easy at all. So um, it's one of the things I, I think I spoke at Cybos last year on this topic um, with, with a, a range of asset managers and they were, you know, they would enhance sort of frustration about the fact that you can't really see the impact you're having. Um, although you you may be encouraging ESG investment and you want to be going reporting back about the impact you've had, it's it's still really hard to assess that. So um, I know that's a longer term thing, but I think it's equally important to to bear in mind of, of, of how you come up with this taxonomy, how you think about the industry and encouraging behaviours. Well, then, do you think you have to kind of break it down by region then a lot more? Because I've seen, I think maybe from asset man- more regional asset managers and beneficial owners, they've all got their own sort of definition of what they think ESG is so so, so someone from maybe a, a sovereign wealth fund in the Middle East their version of ESG could be completely different to like a western it, it would but that's that's part of the problem here is that if we, yeah. if we want to standardize we kind of have to have you know a baseline level but it's not easy this is a very political decision here um and the EU is going to go a certain route and you will get political pushback from other countries that are absolutely opposed to, to that base level, if you ask me. That's what I think is going to happen. Yeah, I mean, I think there'll be some regulatory friction over this and if not political friction as these as these rules roll out for sure. But, but is it still the right time to, to do this? I mean, there's going to be a bit, a bit of a bottleneck um, in terms of regulations with, with certain delays. Um, you know, when we come out of this crisis, is is it the right time? I think politically, they have to. <laughs> um, I mean, the EU has it as a priority, right? They have deadlines to meet, and and they've set in stone, right? They, they've there's global agreements based on this stuff, um, and I don't think that you know even the circumstances we're in will give them an excuse not to do it because it's it's supposedly about you know the future of of the planet. Um, and, and then making sort of you know the lines in the sand that they'll stick to. Um, it might be quite bad for them if they didn't. Is it, my view. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree. I mean, I think you'll see. I think the sort of the COVID outbreak in some outbreak in some ways is going to just put greater political pressure on the need to move um, on these sort of sustainability uh, and ESG initiatives. So I, I think there's it's very unlikely that they're going to take their foot on the gas foot off the gas when it comes to this. Yeah, I think from a kind of sentimental level, it adds in that kind of life is fragile, the world is fragile element onto an already uh, big pressure from from a lot of the world to to act on this as well, doesn't it? Definitely. So I guess the the, the, the final thing we wanted to ask you about then um, to to kind of wrap up today is is how important then is is industry feedback um, on this consultation? I mean, I, I we sort of talked about the challenges of giving feedback, but I still think it's incredibly important that the industry engage on this because once these rules are locked in they're locked in um as we you know we've seen with csdr to be honest so i think it's really important 
despite the challenges of engaging that the industry does engage with us. I, yeah, I mean, I, I can't agree any any more than I you know. I, I would say that the the challenge is how do you give feedback without sounding um, negative to the concepts, but also you, you can't just let regulators regulate something that without in a vacuum because we've seen it go wrong before, <laughs> and they've had, you just end up with a mess, and then you have to try and clean it up afterwards with Q and A documents and added technical standards and back and forth thing. And it just, yeah, it'll be a nightmare. So it, it really try and get in now. Although, you know, obviously it's not going to be easy. People have to sandwich the criticism within some praise. Yeah, thanks very much for sending this out. But here's some things. Yeah. <laughs> I don't hate the world and this is great. <laughs> good, good initiative. It's time to round things off. Well, look, really great to get into that that big talking point today of ESG. Um, so I think that's it, and, and we'll wrap up there. Just a, a quick plug from everyone. Um, Sean, anything uh, people should be keeping an eye out? Where can we find your work? As always, please check out uh, City Securities Services Insight at City Velocity backslash Insights. And Virginia, how do people get in touch with you? They can direct message me on Twitter. Um, it's my handle is at Virginia O'Shea. So. Come say hi. Guys, just a quick message from you. Um, where can people subscribe and find this show to download? So, yeah, Spotify, iTunes, Apple Podcasts, they're the main ones. We're on Google Play. Uh, yeah, pretty much every podcast uh, platform which is out there. But, yeah, if you're following us on Spotify, why don't you give us a subscribe and then you get the automatic update when the episode comes out. So, get ready for episode four, guys. And Great. Well, uh, well, thanks to you all today. Really good show. Um, and, and as always to our listeners, get in touch if you have any feedback or perhaps some topics you'd like us to discuss on the next show. Uh, and please do subscribe and uh, yeah, maybe leave us a five-star rating if you think we deserve it. But for now, that's all. Thanks for listening. You were listening to There's Always a Thin Reg Angle podcast with Global Custodian.